Welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. This is a podcast by clinical psychologists for clinical psychologists. It will introduce you to experts in a wide range of fields relevant to the practice of clinical psychology, and I hope you'll find it engaging and informative. In Clinically Thinking This Time, you'll hear part two of my discussion with Associate Professor Chris Lee, who is discussing the complexity and treatment of trauma in clinical practice. In particular, Chris references a study group called IRIM, which is yielding exciting new research into the effectiveness of trauma treatment, in particular, imagery scripting and EMDR, which will have ongoing benefits for all our patients' quality of life. If you haven't listened to our first segment, before continuing, you may want to go back and catch up on the conversation so far. Chris offered way too many valuable insights for us to edit him down to the one episode. Let's think about trauma-focused therapies in general terms. We're talking about prolonged exposure. We're talking about uh, EMDR imagery scripting, cognitive processing. Do you have any thoughts about when we should choose which therapy? Does it matter? Um, well, I think uh, there are quite, I mean, there's some similarities between all four and there's some quite substantial differences as well. So all of them engage in some point to have the person focus uh, on the uh, targeted uh, memory. Um, but really, the way they proceed from that point is quite um, different. I think people, as, as clinicians who want to do trauma treatment, it's very wise to be trained in at least two methods. Um, because there are different processes that are involved, a therapy that works for one client may not work uh, for another client. And uh, that's, in fact, the view of the International Society of Traumatic Stress Studies as well. Their current guidelines suggest that people should be trained adequately in one trauma-focused approach, but ideally two. And does it matter which combination that could be trained? I think it might. You know, we're, we're, we've started a new IREM uh, project called IREM Frequency, whereas the first one had 155 patients. This is going to have 230 patients. And we're actually going to investigate likely predictors of when a person might benefit from one more than the other. And you need that kind of sample to have power to, to, to predict what might be a difference. My own, uh, you know, personally, I feel that um, EMDR has an advantage early on in just degrading how the memories are stored, in disrupting the vividness of the experience. And in the first IRM, there was a little bit of a tendency on, a, uh, well, in fact, on four uh, measures that, that we used, where EMDR was doing better at the halfway point. But by the end of treatment, the advantage over imagery rescripting disappeared. And there was a slight tendency at follow-up for imagery rescripting to do a little bit better. Um, and that also... Uh, dovetails with some of the qualitative studies that we saw, whereas people in imagery rescripting did talk about uh, basically that they were in, able to internalise their sense of themselves as being soothing and nurturing and providing safety 
and that they went on and developed more images, more representations of that um, healthy self, to use a kind of like schema term, as time went on. So that during the follow-up period, there was tremendous further that in, improvement. I seem to recall seeing somebody on Facebook making a comment referring to you that you'd, you'd made a distinction about EMDR and rescripting, and if you can help me with this one, one you'd use when something was given, you know, was needed to be given and one when something needed to be taken away. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yes, I would say I have so, said that. I, um, and we hope to test that in this kind of like new, new study. But the idea would be this, is that if you've got, and are you, to use kind of like a schema idea, when Young was writing about the types of, uh, adverse child events that happened, he drew a, a distinction between events where there was a frustration of needs and events where there were toxic adverse experiences. So in my view, uh, if someone's schema is caused by toxic adverse experience, sexual abuse, physical abuse, you're much better off to do EMDR than anything else, I believe, because you'll fairly quickly, like within a couple of sessions, have the person find those memories less vivid, less distressing, less disturbing, and you open the door for them really thinking quite differently about themselves. However, when you've got this toxic frustration of need, so let's say neglect would be a, a good one. So when the person hasn't experienced the nurturing that they really need for optimal attachment, then it doesn't, uh, EMDR may not do so well in trying to change the memories of those events because there's basically not a lot of, it's, 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 it's that things didn't happen rather than things did. And in that case, I'm more likely to use an imagery rescripting approach to try and provide that internalised experience. Very interesting. So that it would be when there's a frustration of the need and absence and the, through neglect, for example, that it, by developing an internalised self, you know, the stronger, healthy adult, if you like, tends to be more successful. I think so. What sort of toxic, for our listeners, a toxic and adverse experience, what sorts of things are you thinking about there that might happen in childhood that might respond well perhaps to EMDR? Can you, can you illustrate with a couple of examples as we go forward? That'll be really helpful. Aha. Uh-huh. Um... Yes, well, it, it reminds me of, an, of, of another article that we've just submitted, but the, the things would be, you know, a, a memory of the scene that depicts for the person the, their physical abuse, you know. So a picture of, you know, dad walking to the tree and breaking the, 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 the stick off that he's going to beat the child with. So those things um, uh, respond well to EMDR treatment. The sexual abuse, you know, might be the, uh, you know, the person has intrusive image of being dragged down into the particular bedroom in the house where the abuse always uh, occurred. So those intrusive images of this toxic experience, those are things that uh, EMDR enables a very quick reprocessing of those experiences. And the person feels really different uh, really quickly and kind of, from my point of view, becomes quite optimistic about the possibility of change. So if you've had for three decades this image of dad going to the tree and it's always, to you, felt like it's been stored exactly the same way, and then within a couple of sessions it's no longer stored that way. They don't see 
uh, dad with a sneer on his face as he picks the branch up. But they see themselves as further away or they see it as dad's a lot smaller or looking older now. These are amazing things for clients to experience and really changes how they feel about the therapy and the possibility in their lives. And, and that's what came up in some of our qualitative analysis. But while I'm on the subject of um, uh, adversive events, one of the things that we just wrote up from the first IRAM is that, interestingly, symptom severity was not predicted by the degree of sexual abuse, uh, was not predicted by degree of physical abuse, but actually degree of emotional abuse highly predicted symptom severity overall. And we, we, we measured not just PTSD symptoms, but, you know, shame and hostility and quality of life. So it was a surprising finding. I mean, you can't have PTSD just from verbal abuse, but there is something quite toxic about that that I really think we need to pay more attention to in the future. Is that being consistent with the conventional wisdom around and in previous research around, uh, you know, trauma? and It does. It's actually uh, appearing again and again in, in different studies now. So it's not an isolated finding. So we certainly found research to support that. But it's interesting clinically because, you know, maybe you, you need to focus on the aspect of the trauma where, you know, dad is getting the, the, the branch of the tree down. But maybe you also need to focus on the things that he said while that was happening. Uh, maybe it's the toxic content of those words that uh, also needs a particular focus. Mm, very important to think about those sorts of things because it is tempting to focus on the actual event rather than, you know. The- I don't know. Intuitively, it feels more toxic, but it may not be what, what gets encoded. You know, what may be uh, get encoded is something like, you know, I really am a little shit or whatever was being and said. And we do hear our clients say those words, that, you know, that come, hit, come back into my head every time, you know, that, those words etched in my brain, you know. What else can you tell us about the IRM study that our listeners would like to hear about? Mm. Oh, look, one of the biggest takeaway things that I got from that was the importance for in chronic conditions for seeing people twice a week. So it really changed my clinical practice in doing that. So uh, I think... Maybe over the last, let's say, seven or eight years, people doing trauma-focused treatments have often opted for doing twice a week instead of once a week. And um, sometimes that's been through convenience. Um, but uh, we actually think it really enhances the treatment's effects. And uh, reading, again, the qualitative interviews with therapists after the study, all of them not all of them, but a lot of them talked about that having none participated in the IRM project, it changed their practice. So from now on, whenever they've got people with childhood trauma, they see those people twice a week because they think it's more effective. And I think there are a number of reasons why that might be. One is you get this momentum of change. So if you see someone on Tuesday and then you, and you do trauma-focused treatment and you see them again on Friday or Thursday, they seem really in the groove and ready to keep going. And it's hard, it, it, it's, it's well, compared to once a week where it's really easy for both the client and the therapist to collude to avoid doing hard work. So our thinking uh, is around, generally, is around providing weekly or fortnightly treatment and sometimes that's dictated uh, people's thinking by Medicare. But I, I would 
you know, it's easy for a therapist when you're seeing them twice a week to remember exactly where you where you left off. Yeah. There's no need for that going, how you, how's your week been, what's happened, because you know nothing's happened particularly, or if it has, we can just pick up where we left off. We've just paused yeah. and now we get straight back to it. Yeah. The other thing I'd say, Lisa, is that from the data, again, from RM, is that the first three trauma processing sessions, you get tremendous reduction in symptoms. So basically what happens is people start to think about their trauma experiences uh, differently and you can build on that momentum when you're seeing uh, uh, people and you've only seen them 48 hours ago. They're keen, they're interested, they want more of what they had in the previous week. And then maybe by the time you get to, you know, the third or fourth uh, 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 session, you've already established a change process that keeps them engaged in the therapy. I think there's a problem doing a trauma-focused treatment, I really do, for a first session and not seeing someone for a fortnight, all sorts of things. Anticipator anxiety can build, uh, you know, other associations kind of like get in the way of just providing a treatment. So are we in a situation where generally we need to be meeting more regularly with our clients? Like forget this once a week rubbish, we need to be meeting. It's really weird, Lisa. I tried to look up where did once a week come from? You know, like, wow, how did that, you know, sort of like start? Somebody said Freud began doing it. Yeah, I was wondering. But uh, anyway, it might exist. Someone can, if they're listening to this, wants to email me where once a week come from, be really happy to kind of like hear about that. But the more chronic conditions, I'm, I'm strong. I, well, I've moved my practice anyway. So. And do you use the outcome measures um, every time, every every session? I'm using. I'm I'm seeing a client at the moment um, with the, from the bushfires and Adelaide survived the bushfires, and he's a great old farmer. And uh, I give him the PCL and the IESI every session, and he doesn't much like doing it, uh, but he does it. What do you do? Uh, it depends. So I, I definitely try, and every time I'm doing a trauma focused. Um, uh, processing session, I definitely give a measure because I use it uh, clinically. And typically, I use the impact of events every session, but the old one, just the the, uh, the shorter one that only has intrusion and avoidance items, it's just 15 questions. It takes 40 seconds often for people to just tick the boxes down there and you've got an idea of where you're going. You can compare from what you've done before and in later stages of treatment, make some choices about that. But let's just say if you were writing to a GP or you wanted to make a little bit more of a comment about how they're fitting into um, DSM-type uh, diagnosis, then you can use the PCL5, which is a bit longer. It's, you know, um, it's probably over the top to give it every session, but you can. Um, but that would be nice to give, a, you know, session 1, 6, 10. It, it's certainly regularly administering outcome measures keeps keeps the therapy on track. I've certainly noticed with that he might say to me, oh, yeah, I'm doing so much better, I'm doing so much better, and let's have a look at the um, <laughs> the outcome measure there. And, well, yeah, we've got a little way to go. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, very important for keeping therapy um, uh, uh, focused. Um, and do you think there's some, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, sort of momentum, there, there's some change that happens between or the, the therapeutic week, like people are gradually improving. Like there's an like echo, if you like, there's of the of the improvement that happens over time. Uh, yeah, I think people do after a session go on and do their own uh, processing, and I think a substantial amount of that happens 
in 24 or 48 hours after an experience. And often it's really interesting to hear people's insights and associations that they've had to your last session when you do see them two days later. I'm not sure it's the only way to improve. I am, I am impressed by some of the research that suggests that even you could have treatment every day and that you can actually get some substantial uh, changes from this more intense uh, practice where you might uh, deliver the entire therapy within a 10-day uh, approach. I think uh, things like that are certainly worthy of further investigation. Have you ever done that, have offered treatment daily over a limited time? We've done that. We've played around with that um, for someone that, uh, for a couple of people that didn't respond to what we were doing. We um, gave them kind of like, it's, it's a Dutch model, but we gave them prolonged exposure in the morning, the EMDR in the afternoon, and we did that for eight days over a 12-day period. And uh, for a couple of people that hadn't responded to anything today, that made an amazing difference for them. So it might be horses for courses. There may be some people that are better suited to that intensive practice. There might other people's brains might be wired a bit differently and having a couple of days spaces between treatment is a bit better. Yeah, there's certainly some studies to be undertaken there to see which is better because why would anybody want to suffer a moment longer with the kind of pain that they yeah. suffer with, you know, in a day-in and day-out basis? Um, what does the notion of trauma-informed care mean to you? Um, I'm not sure. Like, I, I have different associations uh, uh, to that. Does it mean uh, that we need to be mindful of the impact of traumatic experiences on a person's life? Does it mean that we have to be mindful of the fact that people have neglect and uh, verbal abuse and other things that are affecting their presentation, even though they don't make criteria for PTSD. And uh, in taking a history, um, uh, e should we be kind of uh, focusing more on that? So an example for me of that is chronic depression, where adverse child events we know are etiologically uh, relevant to the chronicity of the depression and the severity that people experience. So trauma-informed care would mean if somebody is depressed and my traditional approach would be CBT, trauma-informed care would mean, well, I'll ask about the history kind of things because maybe they need trauma processing on their verbal abuse as they were growing up or on their um, neglect and that you'll get a better treatment outcome when you are mindful of that. So that's one idea about uh trauma-informed care. What, what, what were you thinking, Lisa? When you, were, um... you know, it's a big, it's a bit of a vexed one. And um, I remember reading an article about trauma-informed legal care, for example, the idea that, well, really that the legal system was not terribly tra trauma-informed at all, being that it wasn't supportive, it wasn't mindful of the fact that most people in that system, uh, especially in the criminal justice system, have undergone some trauma. That's one thing. But I was a little bit concerned that maybe this notion of trauma-informed care stops a bit short of offering active therapy for the trauma because of the fear that it might be too much for the client to cope uh -huh. with and lead to some sort of decompensation, et cetera. Right. And what really what you're saying is 
that maybe there's two groups of folk, but that at some point there uh, needs to be some active trauma treatment. I'm bringing. I'm thinking of a client actually who spent a year in trauma-focused care and then came to uh, see a trauma-focused therapy clinician having had no active treatment. But this particular client was very capable of addressing their trauma, living at every moment of the day. And it felt a little, I was a little concerned that perhaps this person had missed out on actually getting better because of this particular approach to trauma treatment. That's what I'm kind of wondering about. Ah, so the the definition might include where you kind of like trauma-informed care, you're thinking of a definition where it might kind of like say that you have to be careful in how you approach someone's traumatic experiences because there's a sense of fragility that makes... That's that's right. Is is that what you're saying? Exactly so. So there's so much time spent in stabilisation that if you like that there's nothing else that seems to go on. Yeah, I think think a lot of people have been let down by the system with a focus on stabilisation. I think there are many people who have had extensive stabilisation with people fearful of doing trauma-focused uh, treatment because they fear overwhelming the client. But I think a lot of our clients have more resilience than we uh, sometimes think. And that uh, certainly in the research projects that we've done um, have demonstrated that people can uh, tolerate this and it makes a change uh, uh, to their life. And so what you seem to be saying is get to these clinicians and correct me if I'm wrong, is get some training in EMDR and uh, imagery prescripting or at least two approaches to trauma-focused therapy, get confident and competent yeah. and then get out there and get your, roll your sleeves up. And yeah. Get- yeah, it's interesting, you're, um, you know, Joe Biden's stutter there on the confidence, competence kind of like thing is, um, is actually there are the two points. One is people have to feel competent. Again, that came up in our qualitative study. But you have to have confidence in in the thing. And they do go a little bit together. So if you get good training, you are more uh, uh, confident. But the other thing that came up in a smaller group is that people were saying because they were part of the study and they were part of a peer group who supported each other, the fact that they could go and, um, and, you know, share their anxieties about doing the treatment but be part of uh, a group where there would be cheerleading towards doing the treatment gave them greater confidence to keep going with the method and therefore getting the the good results that we saw. Right. So the therapists uh, supported each other to, to encourage them to go forward in yes. these, difficult, these difficult clients. makes a lot of sense. It just speaks to supervision and support, doesn't it, in our clinical work? It does. It does. A couple of final questions, if I may. Yes. Do you think that all who experience trauma can heal is sufficiently scaffolded? Say that again. The big one. Do you think that all who experience trauma can heal if they have sufficient scaffolding? Is you know is, is trauma focused? Is is there healing for everyone, or there's some people who just simply are too damaged? Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna opt for that. I think everybody can can benefit. Absolutely worth a try. Yeah. Absolutely worth a try because even if you think they may not be quite um, um, ready, uh, the clients can, can surprise you. There has to be a willingness, though. That is a point. So the person has to say, I want some treatment. And that is a difference perhaps in IRAM and some practice. So basically going into IRAM is if you said, you know, if, if the person said, right, do you have 
have you had traumatic experiences earlier in your life? And they say, yes. Next question is, would you, uh, uh, do you still think about that? And when you think about it, do you get stressed about it? And then you're doing the CAPS questions to really establish, yes, you've got to be thinking about it a lot, including recently and distressed when you do recoil it. So yes, you've got to make PTSD. The second thing is, are you willing to be involved in a study? You're going to get 12, one and a half hour treatment sessions. And if you say yes to that, we're going to schedule that in the next six to eight weeks and I'll line you up with a therapist to do that. So that's sort of like a second selection criteria. So the people have to say, yes, I want trauma treatment. It's been hanging around in my life for a long time. It's had negative effects for me. I want something done about it. So maybe the people that you wouldn't dive in with the trauma-focused treatments are the ones I tried to describe earlier. They're a little bit ambivalent about whether their trauma has even impacted upon their life or or not. You know, yes, I was sexually abused, but I don't know if that's why I get, you know, into relationships with men who abuse me. I, I see how that could be related that's kind of a that's someone where I'm not going to to dive in with that well maybe as well if they're thinking this is as good as it's going to be um this is as good as going to get I can live with this yeah yeah then they mightn't have the the willingness for that because I think clients understand that it's not going to be you know it's not a painless experience to face with traumas but another thing that's good about the twice a week thing for a lot of the people who are now told it's just six to eight weeks, we'll you know, do it in and then your treatment will be finished. And that's amazing. When you think about it, like a lot of people can handle something really aversive if they know it's short term. So if you're going to have surgery and you know there's going to be pain, you'll still sign up for it. If your surgeon tells you, well, yes, it'll be painful about six or eight weeks and then you're going to be uh, pretty good after that, people go, okay, sign me up. I'll do that. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, think, I think there is an interesting containment that happens when you tell people it's this limited amount of time these limited number of sessions and then you can you know expect to be feeling better i tell you what after this i'm going to be sorting out my trauma clients uh, especially yeah and uh, booking them in twice a week and getting them some of this treatment knocked off one final question if i may uh around helping our communities of uh, clients and our colleagues in processing the trauma that has been 2020. Mm. So, so many of us have been through so much as pandemic, mm. as natural disasters, civil unrest, all kinds of uncertainties. Any final thoughts and how to help? I think um, the, the peer supervision um, uh, for, I think, many therapists does have a little, uh, that kind of a bit of emotional support and encouragement and sense of connection, which I think does, what can you say, inoculate us against more distress in situations where you're dealing with a lot of difficult uh, uh, clients and circumstances that are kind of challenging as, as well. So certainly, certainly a big thing. On that note, thanks, Chris. Thank you, Lisa. I'll add links to Chris's clinical practice and trauma training websites to the Clinically Thinking Facebook page. I'll also upload the recent IRM study for your interest. You can find Clinically Thinking on all of the popular podcast platforms. If you enjoy the show via Apple Podcasts, we'd appreciate it if you take a moment to leave a favourable review. Reviews help other people find the show and tell new listeners what to expect. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. Thanks for listening.